I'm Alex Mosad, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. First topic for today is actually a great example of a company doing exactly that. Spotify. Actually, a linear business. Not even in Plat yet. Their core business is linear, but Spotify has been trying to start up different you know, platform business offerings that bolt on to their core linear offering. Linear offering just being, you know, digital music, uh, you know, subscription. And where they've embraced a platform model is in podcasting. Why is that a, a platform model rather than a linear model? Is because the supply base in podcasting is very fragmented, right? There are uh, a myriad of podcasters, just like this show, which aren't consolidated through one of the four record labels that have then those four record labels have even further consolidated into the RIAA, which is, I think, the Recording Industry Association of America. So you actually just have one entity that a Spotify or an Apple Music negotiates with for all the rights to the music for the large, large majority of really all the music on Spotify. Very hard for them to break out of that stranglehold of consolidated supply that exists with their core business around music. So the smart folks over at Spotify have recognized that clearly and said, hey, where can we actually have more of a platform model where we have uh, obviously fragmented demand amongst our consumers, but also fragmented supply? Those are the key, two key fundamental criteria to have any platform business. Fragmented supply exists a lot in what? podcasting. Uh, so we have seen Spotify make a series of investments. We've covered that on the show. We've covered Spotify's platform business aspirations many times on the show. And I think Spotify is now seeing a lot of that success, most notably with uh, this milestone around their podcast listener numbers surpassing Apple's during the year of 2021. So this research was published by eMarketer. And you can see here on this graph, here is the projection of where Spotify will be. And basically, eMarketer is saying that, you know, look at Apple's just flat. A couple of interesting takeaways. One, Spotify is beating Apple, the platform monopoly of monopolies, at its own game of platform uh, war in the podcasting arena. So check to Spotify. Um, it's a great example about the kind of slow, sluggish tech platform monopoly that is Apple with very poor leadership at the top that is Tim Cook. We've covered you know, what is a very lackadaisical series of initiatives that Apple has been putting out under Tim's leadership, who's really not an innovator, right? He's an operator, he's a manager, and he's a hell of an operator and a manager. Just ask Warren Buffett. Apple, poor innovation record. The future looks bleak. Just look at this chart from eMarketer. So what is Apple's history with Apple podcasting and trying to compete against Spotify? For example, um, seeing that Spotify was signing people like Joe Rogan and all this stuff over a year ago in, in 2020. Here's the Apple timeline, Apple podcast timeline. This is back to July 2019. Apple will reportedly fund Apple exclusive podcasts. Okay, that's more than two years ago. So this is now the rumor mill, and it talks about some of the tech startups uh, that are out there innovating, like this Luminary company. We've covered them. Okay, so that's summer 2019. Fast forward to now June 2020, basically a year later. Joe Rogan has now been signed by Spotify. 
this article here. Does Apple finally have a plan for podcasts? Apple Podcasts, a curious addition to its directory, the Zane Lowe interview series, which was marked on the platform as an Apple Music podcast. And uh, Lowe is a DJ. And, you know, so they kind of like, they didn't even dip their big toe into the water. This is like they kind of dipped their pinky toe into the water. And basically this article is saying, I don't know really what Apple's doing. They did this Zane Lowe thing, but I haven't really seen anything significant. Certainly not anything near the level of signing Joe Rogan to a nine-figure deal and having him take down his stuff from YouTube. Fast forward to this spring. This is April 2021. Apple's kind of industry day. The announcement of the new service from Tim Cook, right? This isn't like delegated down. This is Tim Cook. Apple Podcast Subscriptions. So now they're launching this. Tim Cook says, this is the biggest change to Apple Podcasts since its debut. I was, and this I was thinking about, like, since its debut, it looks like Apple has been in the podcast in- game for 15 years doing nothing. Just letting Spotify come in here and obliterate them. Apple Music and and Apple Podcasts isn't shrinking. It's just flat, whereas Spotify is like this. You saw the chart. So to me, that is a huge failure. Spotify's ambitions and their plans and what they've been putting into motion, they haven't hit any of it. It's right in broad daylight. This is a great example about a failure to execute on basically innovating, right? And building a new business out called Apple Podcast, which, I mean, now finally, two years later, and then we're eventually going to see premium subscriptions, but we still haven't seen anything material. We still haven't seen anything just baked into the traditional podcast offering. You know, the rest of this article talks about a button called the Smart Play button that helps listeners automatically start episodic shows from the latest episode and serialized shows from the beginning of each series. Wow, Apple. I don't even know what you're going to come up with next. This is just groundbreaking stuff. Um, So a great example up and coming tech company, not even truly platform yet, really taking it to the big tech monopoly. That is Apple. Uh, Spotify stock market cap, 40 billion. There are a few of these kind of like what I would call mid cap up and coming tech companies, many of them platforms like a Salesforce buying Slack, like, um, uh, you know, Square buying Afterpay, um, what Spotify is doing here to, to become platform, what Shopify is doing to become platform, right? I think the, there are a few of these kind of mid-tier, some of them platforms, some of them linear tech getting into platform. The growth you're going to see from this kind of middle pack, I think they're going to blow an apple out of the water. Amazon, a little bit of a different story, uh, but an apple going to blow them out of the water. So that's first topic. Love to see it. Great job, Spotify. Next topic is... So this, this is a good little uh, interview with um, the founder fund uh, partner named Keith Raboy, Rabois, and he's on CNBC. It's a really interesting clip. I'll let you listen to it. 
And then, you know, we've got some takeaways here. China's tech crackdown and here to talk more about it. Let's bring in Founders Fund partner Keith Raboy. Keith, good to have you this morning. Now, the big investors in China aren't necessarily Silicon Valley firms. They're the big Chinese tech giants. Alibaba and Tencent have poured billions and billions of dollars into the startup ecosystem. And by the way, money into American companies as well. With the crackdown that we're seeing from Beijing, what do you think could be the effect on the startup ecosystem? Well, I don't know if there'll be an effect in the U.S. startup ecosystem. None of the companies we're involved in are really dependent upon Tencent or Alibaba's money. Those are just options that some of the companies have considered as they've explored expanding into new markets or they've found price-insensitive investors. So it's been like an option for entrepreneurs. It's never been indispensable. Okay, and what about the Chinese ecosystem that, I mean, it's really the one of the only countries that have seen tech giants even rival ours, and in some cases, in terms of technology, could argue, some do argue, ahead of ours in terms of that super app. Yeah, for those investors who've been investing in China, they're in for a rude awakening. Um, the landscape of investing in China is both morally problematic, legally problematic, and now financially problematic. Okay, so first bit there, talking about there is no bigger monopoly than the CCP. CCP has made that very clear the past few months in in wiping over a trillion dollars of value off of uh, the Chinese big tech company valuations. We saw this really start to get going in earnest kind of second half of last year. The Jack Ma episode was a really kind of telltale signal. The uh, financial IPO getting canceled. Keith did a really good job summing up you know, why you're seeing such aggressive crackdown on big tech. It's all, it's just a power game. And the CCP is the number one game in town. And they don't like that big tech was starting to, you know, speak out or, or challenge or not adhere to, to every beck and call of the CCP. Some of the cases against Google is that the, the thesis, the narrative seems to be focused on individual consumers versus advertisers or developers or partners where it seems to me like the case would be stronger what's your what's your take on the approach here that uh, the states and in some cases the feds are taking well let's let's distinguish between two things you saw keith's face right the moment the guy gave the linkage between the ccp and uh, the the u.s government you're gonna see that's all he focuses on but the CNBC anchor just nailed the question. We talk about this all the time on the show. You can't, from an antitrust standpoint, you can't focus on the consumer. It's a red herring. You have to focus on the producer. The guy nailed it. And I was really so delighted to see uh, the media finally, someone in the media, pick up on this extremely important nuance. I mean, it's the whole crux of... Um, any antitrust case is you got to focus on the producer, not the consumer. I've been saying it for years now until I'm blue in the face. This is probably one of the first times I've actually heard someone in the media speak to it with some degree of eloquence, which seems like I think he actually has a pretty decent grasp of, 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 of why, you know, of why we talk about that. Unfortunately, Keith does not respond to that. But let's listen to the next bit of the conversation. Let's distinguish between two things. There's no equivalence between the cases being brought against Google and the CCP's influence and control of Chinese companies. By law, since 2017, every business in China is an arm of the CCP. By law, when the government in the United States uses the judicial process to prosecute alleged violations, 
in front of an independent judiciary, it's a completely different world. So I wouldn't allow anybody to draw like the connection between those two things. If you want to talk about Google's abuse of its power and potential antitrust violations, we can discuss that. But any connection to China's manipulation, China's genocide, and being a tool of the government has absolutely nothing to do with Google, Apple, Amazon, or anybody Practicing business in the United States. Oh yeah, I'm not that saying they're. I'm not saying they're equivalent, like on a moral or ethical basis. What I'm saying is that in both cases, there are governments that, based on you know their uh, ethic, based on what they believe is right for them, think these tech companies have gotten too powerful. Sure. So in in China, absolutely. The state doesn't want any powers that are alternative to the CCP, and they've realized that wealth creates alternatives to power. This is why the whole policy of engagement has been a complete failure for the last 30 years. Is economic success, independent companies, quote in quotes, have not led to greater freedoms for the Chinese, and so that failure needs that failure and that policy needs to be completely reassessed and rebuilt from scratch. In the U.S., there's a set of people who believe that tech companies are powerful. The truth is, the American consumer does not believe this. All of the evidence suggests that the most popular entities in the United States are the U.S. military and Amazon. And so, this is fiction driven by people who are frustrated by their lack of power, mostly journalists, because now journalists no longer control the world, and they don't enjoy the fact that there's alternative sources of information, knowledge, data. That journalists can't control, so they've created this quote-unquote tech backlash, backlash story, which is completely fabricated out of thin air. There is no substance. There's no people that believe、I'm, in this. Tech is as popular as it's ever been. So the guy nails it on China. Says, you know,、um, there's, there's, you a morally, you're screwed if you do deals in China. Music to my ears. Been talking about that for years. Never made sense to me. How do you do deals with? It's like, you know, how do you do deals with communists?、It、just doesn't make sense to me. And then he says, legally, you're screwed if you do deals in China. People are figuring that out now.、Uh, and now the CCP is is cramming down on you. So yeah, if you're doing deals in China, you got a whole world of hurt coming down on you. Nails that. Love that about this interview. You know, I think if you look at the the. The actual question that the anchor was asking, where he's saying, a lot of these cases focus on the consumer, these antitrust cases, but shouldn't they be focusing on the producers, essentially, right? And what Keith is saying is, hey, consumers love big tech monopolies. the The funny thing is, they they might actually have kind of been on the same page. Keith did not like the connection that the anchor somewhat made between the Chinese government and the U.S. government, but there are a lot of similarities in what they're saying. That U.S. consumers, by and large, you know, you keep using Amazon even if you don't like it. I still keep using Amazon. I try not to, and I use Walmart, and I try to use other, and I try to use Shopify sites, and I try to buy from small business. But still, do I order nothing from Amazon? No, I still order some stuff from Amazon. And and you know I, all we do is talk about on the show how we need to、uh, power check and rein in the power of big tech. And yeah, I still do orders on Amazon as a consumer. Yeah, you can see that, but the producers are the ones that really get harmed、uh, by big tech monopolies. And and the crux of why that's so important is that producers are also customers to big tech monopolies. I don't think they had that type of conversation because Keith kind of heard that trigger that linkage and then kind of. You know, I feel like kind of made up his mind on what point he was going to make. 
But lots of really interesting things to unpack there. I think that a lot of consumers do not appreciate the overreach that big tech monopolies are making. And these days, it's actually hard to discern between a consumer and a producer, particularly on social media, right? And content censorship, which we talk a lot about on the show. So let's actually dive into some examples about where big tech is overreaching. And I would argue that U.S. consumers and producers alike are not happy about it. First example is PayPal. Now, not necessarily a monopoly, pure kind of FAMGA level monopoly yet, but you have here uh, one of the co-founders of PayPal, this guy named David Sachs, who recently penned this uh, article just at the end of July. And, you know, he's talking about the level of censorship that now big tech is making under the vein of saying, hey, you know, we need to do this to to protect, uh, you know, to protect society at large or to protect children. Um, that's actually where all the Section 230 stuff started. That's going to be my next example. He starts off, when I helped create PayPal in 1999, it was in furtherance of a revolutionary idea. No longer would ordinary people be dependent on large financial institutions to start a business. Our democratized payment system caught fire and grew exponentially Millions of users who appreciated its ease and simplicity. Traditional banks were too slow, bureaucratic to adapt. Instead, the revolution we spawned two decades ago inspired new startups um, and, and this whole new kind of financial reengineering. But now PayPal is turning its back on its original mission. It is now leading the charge to restrict participation by those it deems unworthy. You know, once you start down this path, we've talked about it as it relates to social media platforms, right? Once the social media platform starts to regulate content, is it really a platform or is it really more of a publisher? And this goes back to the Section 230, which comes up so frequently. And once you open Pandora's box and, and you're a content platform, and you start to regulate uh, what speech can be said on your platform. You now have crossed the line, and what you see happen, this isn't a hypothetical, right? We've got now years of precedent to show that the censorship gets greater. It doesn't stay the same or stagnant or reduce. The censorship only increases. Uh, we've seen this clearly across Facebook and Google and Amazon with books AWS now, and he even talks about it here. David talks about most of the finance tech stack, Stripe, Square, PayPal, Shopify, GoFundMe declared they were canceling the accounts of individuals and organizations connected to the Capitol riot. And they're saying that Parler was connected to the Capitol riot, even though uh, Facebook and Twitter and all the mainstream social media platforms had way more uh, of the type of activity that they were beating up on Parler for, right? So once you open Pandora's box and you you bring biased and subjective censorship and rulemaking into play, it only increases. It doesn't doesn't stay the same or get less, right? Just like government power. Government power is only uh, staying the same or increasing. Government power is not decreasing. This is a great example. PayPal now getting into, guess what? The censorship game. It started around content and social media with the YouTubes and the Facebooks and the Instagrams and the Twitters. 
And now it's moving from content into everything else, right? And we saw it earlier this year in 2021 with the stack, with the infrastructure, which David mentioned here, uh, AWS, and then, and then the, the group that followed. Um, so that's PayPal. Now, the next one is Apple. Apple plans to think different about encryption, opens a backdoor to your private life. This is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Apple has announced impending changes to its operating systems that include new protections for children, features in iCloud and iMessage. If you've spent any time following the crypto wars, you know what this means. Apple is planning to build a backdoor into its data storage system and its messaging system. This was Apple's whole uh, positioning, right? Privacy. We don't look at your data. We don't look at what's on your phone. And this was their big differentiator against Google. Now, you're opening Pandora's box. You're creating the mechanism and the tool and the infrastructure and the back door to regulate, in this case, photos on people's phones. But if you're going to do the activity of monitoring photos on people's phones that violate you know, child uh, pedophilia and pornography um, laws, you have the capability to apply that same technology and censorship to other stuff on your phone. And that is the rule of thumb. The censorship in this day and age is not decreasing, it is increasing. And you're seeing it now in, in every bit of big tech. Universally, the majority of Americans do not like this stuff. And that is why you're seeing troves of, of, of Americans and, and users alike around, uh, around the globe flee to alternative, and the, you know, uh, the best example is social media and content platforms, which we've covered many times on the show. I call it the third wave, third wave social media and content platforms. The censorship is only increasing. And, and you say to yourself, okay, Alex, I mean, like, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Like, what? you know, it kind of seems like everywhere you look, every door you open these days, it's censorship and it's government overreach and, you know, everywhere. Net, net, yeah, I'm actually very optimistic. Um, over the long term, you know, and I, and I think the way this all plays out is the pain is going to get a lot worse, uh, before it gets better. And I mean, that sucks, but it's kind of like a necessary evil. We are seeing all these big, powerful actors, uh, impose their will in this case, big tech monopolies. Um, and they'll just do whatever they want, right? And I think more and more people are waking up. I actually think a majority of American uh, of Americans see what's going on. They're already awake. It's just a matter of how much you're going to make them uncomfortable and basically tick them off before they take action. That's exactly what's happening right now. The overreach is only going to continue until we, the people, enforce our will and recognize that uh, whether it's the government or big tech. They work for us, not the other way around. And unfortunately, both of those parties, government and big tech, have forgotten that. But it'll all change. It'll all come back into balance. But it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. This stuff's only going to continue, right? There's, we had this guy on the show, the guest, uh, Mike uh, Mathis. You know, we were saying none of this stuff in Congress, none of this stuff, you know, with uh, Lena Khan at the FTC, these regulators, no one's going to rein in big tech anytime soon. All this stuff is years away. And that's best case scenario, right? That's if all of the donors and the lobbyists don't water down everything or just kill any legislation altogether. I mean, our government 
is now so bloated and just corrupt that this stuff just, you know, it's, it's, you, you can't rely on it anymore, right? I don't even need to get, you know, I've talked about inflation. I'll, I'll save the inflation talk and all this stuff for another time. But yeah, things are going to get a lot worse before they get better, but eventually they will get better and there'll be a correction, just like there is a correction in markets, right? Uh, and the correction is also needed in the markets, but there will be a correction. And this stuff is just showing everyone their true colors, whether it's government's thirst for power or big tech's thirst for power. The irony is, is that, you know, the excuse that everyone uses, everyone being from Section 230 to now Apple, is children. This whole thing, this whole uh, initiative from Apple is, you know, around child exploitation, which is a very serious issue. That is what Section 230 was also originally put into place for, was to cover, to allow content platforms and social media platforms to let them take down basically pornographic and, and, and pedophilia type content, but still be classified as a platform, right? Still have safe harbor, still not be liable uh, for third-party content on their site because they're a platform and, and they don't control that. But but to let them also take down harmful content like pornographic and, and content that puts children at risk, okay? That's where this all started with Section 230. Now look at what they are considering the 230 language, which is very loose, but it was put into place to protect the children. Now look what they're doing to abuse the language in 230, right? Taking down crypto content, uh, taking down content around uh, where COVID originated from, right? The list goes on and on and on. And that is the unfortunate bit about uh, bit about it, right? As you say, yes, child, uh, taking advantage of children, child pornography, bad, really bad. Um, and you say, yes, this makes sense on the surface, but you need to ask yourself, could these actors, these actors being big tech platforms, monopolies, take advantage of this? And the answer is absolutely yes. And the answer is, is there precedent that they will take advantage of this? And the answer is uh, obviously. And so then you ask yourself, well, why should you expect anything different from Apple than you have seen from the other big tech monopolies? And the answer is you shouldn't expect anything different. And this is just the beginning of Apple pilfering through the information on your phone and um, censoring it. So. The one thing Apple still had going for it, Tim Cook has now let that thing go by the wayside also. Really great job over there, Tim. Okay, but if you, you know, like I just said, it's going to get worse before it gets better. So now it gets worse. Okay. Um, now this one is, I love this piece, the fourth branch of the United States government. And here is uh, Mordor and Washington, D.C. There's the big eye. Um, from, uh, from, oh, what's the bad guy in Lord of the Rings? Oh boy. I, I can't forget this guy's name. Sauron. So Sauron and DC are in cahoots. This article is talking about how actually another form of, of big tech, the, really the NSA snooping on everything and everyone and we've talked, we've covered the NSA, we've covered the five eyes, right? And um, how all that stuff works. 
Five Eyes is a data sharing agreement between the U.S. and four other, you know, Anglo-Saxon countries, England, Canada, I think New Zealand and Australia, who teamed up to say, hey, we're going to do data sharing. Basically, the reason they did this is to get around laws in the United States, which prevent um, are supposed to prevent U.S. agencies from spying on American citizens. Well, they've just developed a million loopholes to circumvent that. They're spying on all of us, or even our own government. But the idea with Five Eyes was that, hey, we'd, we'd say, hey, England, could you spy on Alex, right? NSA would say, hey, England, spy on Alex because I can't spy on Alex. But then just share that data with me, England, because I can't break the laws. You know, what some of this article talks about is that the U.S. Uh, agencies are are using contractors to basically sub out the domestic spying because now it's technically not the U.S. agency doing the spying, right? It's not a federal government employee doing it. It's a contractor doing the spying, which which is not supposed to be happening. But now technically, the federal employee is not breaking the, the law. It's ridiculous. Um, so... Basically, it's just a runaway with what this article says, the runaway kind of fourth branch of government, which is this just unstoppable force of spying, uh, which is called the intelligence branch. And the crazy thing in this article, which is why I bring it up here, is the biggest names in big tech announced in June their partnership with the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, ultimately controlled by the NSA, to monitor to one, monitor all activity in their platforms. Two, identify extremist content. Uh, three, look for expressions of domestic violent extremism. And then four, put the content details into a database with five eyes intelligence agencies can access it. Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Microsoft are all partnering with this intelligence apparatus. And they even published a press release... <laughs> What? <laughs> Facebook and tech giants to target attacker manifestos, far-right militias in database. And so they have a joint press release, um, which they announced 14 companies. 14 companies can access this database, including Reddit, uh, Snapchat, obviously Facebook, Verizon, probably loves being looped in as a tech company, Microsoft, uh, Dropbox, and um, so they are openly admitting their alliance with the government and big tech to work together in cahoots to do what? Censor us, patrol us, rule us, and control us. You know, I couldn't believe, yeah, but yeah, there it is in the press release. The group will use lists from intelligence sharing group Five Eyes, adding URLs and PDFs from more groups. And um, here, so this says, think about that sentence structure very carefully. They're adding to the pre-existing list, admitting the group, aka Big Tech, already have access to the intelligence sharing database and are also admitting there is a pre-existing list created by the Five Eyes Consortium. The censorship is only going to get worse. It's only going to increase. Um, they're now actually issuing press releases about, about working together. Actually, now actually, actually admitting that they've already been working together on this and that they're only going to continue working together and in greater um, collaboration to, uh, to censor and control us. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It is crazy. Yeah, it's, it's getting worse, gang. It will get better, but it's going to get, it's still, it, it could still get worse. Trust me, it's going to get worse. Eventually it'll get better, but it's still going to get worse for the time being. We just got to kind of hold on 
hunkered down the hatches and brace for impact because woo, oh oh it's it's coming um i mean i i i hate to make light of it um but you can you can see the script playing out right i mean i i would rather just to kind of advance to the end game but you know you kind of need to go through these phases for everyone to not just wake up because i think majority of americans have already woken up and seen it and see it and are not okay with it um despite what keith was saying earlier on in, in today's episode um, i just think that you know americans have a very high tolerance <laughs> or you know it takes a lot to to get everyone really riled up to say uh-uh it's not okay um but people can recognize it people are smart they can see what's going on uh they don't like to be treated like sheep or they don't like to be treated like they're having the wool pulled over their eyes um they can see what's going on and eventually it'll change but in the meantime uh yeah everything you do is getting tracked everything and it's not okay it's not okay so my example of a red herring the information doing a briefing cloudflare complaint pinpoints amazon's antitrust weak spot this is actually a great example of a red herring which is a distraction because yes you could say amazon's taking advantage of really its customers in this case because it's charging these fees and it's actually not taking advantage of the producers um it's really taking first and foremost advantage of the customers and then that has implications for the producers but you know why focus on aws as an antitrust threat when even this even these guys are saying oh this is amazon's antitrust weak spot but then in their own uh, post on it they say amazon aws has 32 to 40 percent of the market so you're telling me this is Amazon's big weak spot, the blind spot, the antitrust weak spot. AWS. Oh, yeah, yeah, but they have uh, at most 40% market share. This is the kind of stuff which is which just pollutes, right? It's just noise. The clear area that Amazon has an absolute monopoly is not even with consumers. It is with third-party sellers on their marketplace. They easily have over 70% market share of all third-party sales, right? So if you're a third-party seller and you want to sell stuff in a marketplace online, Amazon easily has over 70% market share in that space. I've covered it multiple times on the show. I've done the math. It's not even close. Even if I give conservative, like ultra-aggressive, very friendly estimates to how much volume Walmart is doing through 3P third-party sales, which is doing well, but it still pales in comparison to Amazon. So why focus on this thing called AWS when you have multiple competitors, right? Like look at AWS versus Azure we've covered on the show versus Google Cloud. Um, and, and you're telling me Amazon has a stronger antitrust hold there than they do in marketplace? Just dumb. The funny thing or the cool thing about this, take it for what you want, is, I mean, Cloudflare is no small puppy. It's like a 40 billion market cap company doing a lot of like network security. And, you know, uh, so if your site is, is going to get these uh, denial of service attacks, right? Like they'll help protect against that stuff. 
Um, so they need to integrate with AWS and your cloud provider. But they do this whole thing, really blasting Amazon for these uh, data transfer fees. And they break out the Amazon's margin, which they're saying is 8,000% margin. Estimated regional cost per megabit, is they're saying is $0.08. Cents. And what they're effectively charging, you know, they show you uh, $6. So they're doing the math. They're saying it's 8,000% markup for, you know, in terms of what their margin is on the cloud storage, which is hilarious that, that Cloudflare is coming that aggressive at Amazon. It's not some small startup trying to kind of get a PR thing 40 billion market cap company, Amazon, like probably their biggest partner, frenemy um, that they have to work with and integrate with for, for their customers. Uh, I mean, it's uh, that to me was the funniest part about this thing. But the other bit, it's just a great example about how so much noise and everyone just gets distracted. Got to stay very focused to successfully pull off these antitrust proceedings. So closing out here. The other thing that I liked from what Keith was saying, going back to that interview with Keith on CNBC, a lot of people waking up about China and needing to look elsewhere to not invest in China. And we're actually seeing that in a couple areas. So there's um, this Bloomberg article here, venture capital firms turn to India with China's tech crackdown just published recently, past week or so. This pink line is India. And we covered maybe one or two episodes ago about the two quarter over quarter declines in um, VC investment in China. And so now, obviously, if you're a Chinese VC, you can't take money out of China. <laughs> that's, you know, that's the name of the game. But all these foreign, many of them Western VC funds do have the flexibility to put money elsewhere into more broadly Asia. India being the bright spot. I love both the Chinese people and the Indian people. Um, it's just the CCP, which kind of screws everything up. Fortunately, India does not have um, anywhere near the kind of corrupt and totalitarian and communist government structure that China has. And there's huge, huge opportunity in India. Um, it's much earlier on in its development. Similarly, massive market just in terms of amount of people, but a lot of innovation happening there. We've talked about India actually as the battleground between the U.S. and China, where you have both of our respective big tech monopolies, U.S. and Chinese tech monopolies, really duking it out in India for some time now. And you've actually seen the Indian government be quite progressive with how they take into account certain regulation. Um, to help promote domestic Indian VC and tech startup community, right? So what I mean by that is um, giving preferential treatment to uh, domestic Indian companies and putting more restrictions on foreign tech companies coming to operate in India itself, right? Which is what, guess what? We called um, China protectionism, which China has done aggressively and it helped provide that incubation period for the Chinese tech community and startup community and VC community to get on its feet and get going before you had these massive foreign, many of them US tech monopolies roll into China and then just suck up that vacuum. So um, India has not been as aggressive with their protectionism. They have done some of it. They were the ones to start banning all the Chinese apps. That was credit to them. But anyway, now you see 
uh, money going into India. The other area that you see is Brazil. So there's a cool company here. I'm going to talk about more. I'm going to have my co-author and managing director here at Applico, Nick Johnson, join me. We're going to talk about Kavak uh, going into Brazil and bringing $500 million uh, to enter that market. So the rise of the uh, BRI countries, if you may remember, there's a term called BRIC, uh, which was like the rising you know, companies, Brazil, Russia, India, China. I would say it's really just the rise of the BI countries, take out the communist ones called, oh yeah, China and Russia, and um, bring it to Brazil and India. Both markets I love. I love a lot of what's going on in Latin America. I love what's going on um, in many parts of Southeast Asia, India especially, but there's many other interesting things going on more broadly in what I would call Southeast Asia. I think with those two countries, the really kind of the biggest countries, Brazil and LATAM and India and Southeast Asia, that are really leading the charge in a lot of really interesting ways. Action, reaction. Money's got to go somewhere. Um, I think I think this Chinese VC stuff is is probably one of the early indicators about a change in how investors uh, think about China. Just like tech censorship and big government um, overstepping and censoring and manipulating and controlling our lives, this too will only increase over time. Except that's actually a good thing in terms of diversifying away from China, as opposed to the latter thing, the censorship and and uh, control being a bad thing. So, hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, I will talk to you soon. That's it for us today on Winner Take All.